Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. My guest today is Erik Dehaan, Professor of Organizational Development and Coaching, Director of the Center for Coaching at Hart International Business School at Eschridge, and a prolific writer of articles and books on coaching and coaching research. Welcome, Erik. I'm delighted to have you. Thank you, Sultan. Very, very good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for and inviting me. Can we start with a, with a personal question? That I've, I've read so many of your articles and, and books on coaching. What, what brought you to coaching research? So how, where is Ooh. your passion coming from? Oh, that's, uh, that's not an easy question. Coaching was older. So coaching is very much to do with my family dynamics. Somehow my early childhood must have prepared me for, the, for this profession. My own understanding of it is that I am one of very many third generation Holocaust victims, although I'm a very minor one. But my grandfather was a resistance fighter in Holland. Therefore, when he had his first child of eight, who became my mother later, of course, this was exactly, well, one month before the Germans invaded Holland, which, which was something he had already been warning about for seven years to, to everybody. So his prediction came out a bit like what we are seeing in Ukraine right now. But his prediction about the war came out and he became an instantly uh, a resistance person. I think it was quite unsafe in my, in my mother's home when she was very young. Mm-hmm. And he was arrested, for example. He had to go underground and many, many things happened. He survived the war and I think he was okay with it. But his wife, for example, and his children probably suffered quite a lot. So I found myself in a in, in a family with some of some of the remnants of that. And I think from an early age, I, I was invited in to kind of help with um, psychological material or, or, or conflictual dynamics. And I feel that's, that's for me the reason of, uh, for entering this profession. Although I've only discovered any of this when I was 30. So I had no family members in, 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 comparable professions and I was a bit lost when I was 28, 29. And so I only discovered that there was something like coaching when I was about 30. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and the research answer is maybe a bit easier. My father's a researcher and a professor in mathematics. I thought he was often in, in a kind of a fantasy world. So I decided I was not interested in mathematics because it was a you know, it took you away from, from people, from, from life, from, from real reality. So when I discovered I had a, a talent in, in the same area, I decided to study physics, so which is a, almost a branch of mathematics, especially theoretical physics, which I studied. 
but I, I, I decided to, to, to study the real world. And, and that's what brought me to physics. But then I was still very unhappy. I, I didn't quite fit in as a, as a physics student. So this is why when I was 28, 29, I really had to think about what would really fit me as a career. I can see a parallel here because in my secondary school, I was taking yeah. physics classes and I was really drawn to theoretical yeah. physics. I've always been interested in, in the physics of space, ah. that time and space continuum, whatever. And then I, I made the realization that it was too far away from, from humans who yes. were surrounding me. That's why I decided to be a, a psychologist. I see, that, yes. That's where my interest in research is coming from, that I still have this, okay, let's try to put numbers and patterns or, or something around people who are of, who are of interesting form. Yes. So that, that, is, that insight took me about 15 years longer than it took you. So I, uh, I only discovered that physics was far away from the real life and humans and liveliness when I was about, uh, you know, 28, when I was uh, 10 years into physics. But I did always feel I was different. I, I had different interests from my fellow students. I loved film, for example, or theater, not, not the usual physics interests. May I ask, what is the thing that you brought from your, from your physics background to your yeah. current research practice? I think there are many things. Obviously, my PhD in physics made use of statistics. Although when I then went into psychology and coaching, I didn't recognize any of the statistics that coaches use. So all these kind of tests that we now use on SPSS, they, they are not used by physicists. They, they use much more fundamental methods to, to do their statistics. But that's still an, uh, something I, I can recognize and still use. But I think more importantly, in physics, there is a concept about looking at nature or looking at things at the right level of aggregation. For example, in, in this room, you can study all the kind of molecules flying about in, in the room and their dynamics. And that could give you equations and, and, and you can even open them up and see the atoms inside. But you can also study the temperature, which is the very same thing. This is the same, the speed of the, of the molecules and the temperature are very, very related. But of course, they have very different theoretical meaning. Physics is very good at finding meaning at, at, the, at the right level, macroscopic, all the way down to microscopic. And I think with, with coaching, I can use this. So when a client arrives for a session, there's all the kind of fine, fine grain uh, stuff, the, the, the kind of perceptual images or the kind of details in their story. But there's also the, the, the more macroscopic levels. Um, and I think as a physicist, I'm very well trained to find a, a meaningful or a helpful aggregation level within that, within the tiny, from, from the very tiny, tiniest to the global, uh, you know, societal uh, level of, of, um, of impact. That sounds very interesting. Does that makes sense. Okay, yeah, de good. definitely. If I just take a look at, at coaching assignments I'm involved in, then there is always the what's happening here and now. What are your current experiences? Your what your senses are telling to you? Yes. And then we have the other end of the spectrum, the, the systemic level. Yes. Team coaching thing. So what what is the context in which your team is doing this or that, and how does it 
Mm. Correct. And yes, then they and can I, see those similar spectrum here. And that's what I mean. And 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 then to make a choice on that on that incredible richness. I'm I'm still amazed by the richness of even a single meeting or a single conversation. It's so rich. We we are often uh, if we're not really quite awake and 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 lively, we miss some of that richness. Um, um, but I, I'm quite overwhelmed by it quite often in, in sessions. And then physics, my physics background helped me to choose some kind of a level of, of understanding, which seems to be the most meaningful either to me or to my client or to people they work with. And, and that sort of uh, understanding of the level of, of relevance is what I took from physics. Level of aggregation is how they call it. Yeah. You know, as a as a practitioner, I I would love to ask for some practical advice on this. Like how you do that? But, <laughs> but I, I guess this this could be a, a challenging question for your intuition. So I, I'm okay if you just say that. Well, that comes from a physics PhD, so let's go for that. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I wouldn't say that. I think anybody can use this. Uh, just like I'm not a psychologist, and I use many many psychological. Um, uh, concepts and tools. So I feel free to use the psychologist's uh, toolbox. So I think any any psychologist like yourself should feel free to use uh, you know the uh, the the the, um, the, um, the wealth of insight from physics if you can use it. Um, and to answer your question about intuition, uh, I think that's that's of course still a hard one. Um, I think what is important is that you use hypotheses and and that you test your hypotheses. So you you go to some kind of an aggregation level in your understanding, and then you offer some kind of a summary there at that level. And then, of course, you check with your client whether that's really a meaningful level for them. So you have to constantly check back uh, your your understanding. Or, in other words, you have to flirt with your hypotheses. You have to kind of play with them. Not never marry them, always just flirt with them. I, I love this picture. And I, <laughs> uh, and I love the concept of hypothesis because for ah. me that's something that, that links the and, and I don't like dichotomies, but I, I have to use one. So for me, the hypothesis concept links the the world of practitioners and the world of researchers. And I know that there is an yeah. infinite number of a, a continuum in between the, these two endpoints, but but yeah. I love the concept of hypothesis. And and if I can move on with the idea of hypothesis, that that what I love yeah. in research is that that a next step in research or in doing science is always that comes by asking a question, by building on something that we have previously observed or read or yes. something we have inspired by. So, what was the most thought-provoking? article or study or thing that well that you gave an aha moment for you that you started to think of and moved your research thing on oh well sultan that's something you're now asking that happens quite regularly for me so Lucky almost you. every year there's some some article or sometimes a book that does that for me uh, i've got share a, a few examples <laughs> uh, i mean in, when it comes to uh, to research in the helping professions, um, I was I was once very kind of moved forward by the book uh, written by Wampold, the great psychotherapy debate 
which you probably know. It's mm-hmm. a summary of uh, decades of research in helping professions. So, and and that that gave me so many insights that I I could I could understand much more about how this was researched. So that's one example. But if if I can give a a more recent example, I would say the recent research, which tells us that actually the you know the way we are measuring the the strength of the relationship between coaching and clients or patient and therapist that that measurement of the of the relationship is is really not about the relationship although we we thought for decades that this was a very good predictor for the outcome of of our sessions it's it seems not to be the case so you've probably seen that there's a couple of articles that show that the relationship factor is not related to the benefit per session i found that very uh, mind boggling and, and and maybe i can i can give you one more example if that's okay yes uh, I, I there's a also follow up questions for okay, the previous yes. one but, uh, but yes please give give me your give me the well the third, third one would idea. be a third example of something that really struck me recently and about two years ago was um this finding in um by studying just patient outcomes in the NHS in England, um, that it didn't really matter how many sessions somebody had with their therapist. So patients can achieve their, their, let's say, their best outcome within three sessions, five sessions, or even 20 sessions. It didn't matter very much. That is, uh, that's a mind-boggling result as well. Yeah, it, it is. And did that research say anything about then that what is the contributing factor to success then? If Not time... really. So, I mean, there is still what we call the dose effect curve. You see kind of per session, you see the effectiveness go up on mm-hmm. average of, of helping conversations. So there's still the same curve. But if you, if you give a patient eight sessions to achieve this outcome that they can achieve, they will use the eight sessions to get there. Um, if you give them more sessions, like 12, they will use the 12 sessions to get to the same point. So what the, I think what the therapeutic relationship is doing is it's adapting itself to the amount of sessions that they can afford or that they can agree or, or the patient just stops coming once they've got to that point. So Because these are always measurements afterwards. These are evaluation measurements. But I found them very interesting because the conclusion has to be that um, you know these sessions work, and they even work quite independently of the amount of sessions that there are. Uh, so these are these are inter- inter- really interesting articles that make me think. I know why I'm boggled by the by the last <laughs> one because the then yes. the, the the business conclusion would be or the effectiveness conclusion would be then just a contract for for one session. Ah, yes. Let, yeah. Let's go for one introduction where we just get to know each other and contact. Yeah. And I tell you what is the whole thing of, of one session coaching, <laughs> and then you have one session to get to your best. Well, if you if you look it up, it's only this only works from about four sessions to 20 sessions. So you have to go first to four sessions. It doesn't work for the very first sessions when you're still kind of building the relationship. So uh, but yes, the many many payment um, insurance companies and 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 institutions are indeed arguing for very short, very short contracts so that they have to pay they can pay less. Uh, 
Uh, but I don't think that's always the right conclusion. That's only the right conclusion in a very statistical way. Um, you know, I've personally had hundreds of sessions and I really benefited from all of them. So uh, it, it feels a bit mean to deprive people uh, a priori from more than four or five sessions. And I can, I can agree with this from the, from the humane perspective. Yes. And that, that's my personal experience as well, is that it's, it's nice to be there. And sometimes, what, what I'm saying is that sometimes it is the relationship that heals or that, that helps me. And, you know, the longer the exposure, the bigger the, yes. the outcomes are. Well, that's my experience. Perhaps not Correct. always supported by science or research. And what the, I could go on or we could go on in a, whole, in a number of directions from here. But what I, yeah. what, what I picked up or what, where my curiosity is, is that you said that statistically speaking, this is the truth, but this is not the truth. And I'm just curious, and how, how much do you see research, so what, what statistics is telling you in, in aggregation or in whatever context, coming back to real life? So how, yeah, you are a person who knows a lot about research. And mm. I, do you see it working? I mean, really? Yes, I, I mean this is a almost a political question. I mean the yes, the truth has, been, has come <laughs> the truth has come under attack by uh, many many groups groupings, and statistics have even come under attack by many many groupings. There are many individuals um, who use sources which are you know for scientists are really deplorable sources like Facebook or you know or other social media. Uh, and I think that's part of it. And also the, the, all the issues around globalization are other parts of it. So we are becoming a very kind of high number society as well. And not all of us are enjoying that. So I can understand the resistance to globalization. And I can also see that there are many, many things that on an industrial scale, we are, um, we are damaging uh, the planet. We are damaging people with inequalities. Uh, we're, we're damaging people also through very bad leadership in many organizations. So I, I do understand why people uh, don't feel at home in a scientific-led, uh, globalized uh, society, science-led, I should say. However, um, I, I am a firm believer in, in statistics, at least in a statistical sense. So Statistics tell, tell me that there is a benefit coming out of coaching. But of course, I know that for an individual case, there might be a deterioration or there might not be a benefit. Uh, it's only, only a statistical truth that this is worth doing. Um, but I, yes, I took all my vaccinations and I, I will always follow research. I'm, I'm a researcher by, uh, by nature. And I think I can... I can be convinced by an argument as well. If there is an argument, and there might be an argument that, uh, you know, that certain kind of, for example, the coaching relationship, which was a very kind of established truth in our profession, that this was such an important factor for success. Um, I can be convinced that we're not measuring it, that we're not, we don't know much about it, and that we don't really recognize what factor is at play here. Um, so I think it, it helps also to keep an open mind to follow science because you can always be convinced of, 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 a, 
of an of a novel way of of understanding things. Thank you, and, and thank you for answering the, the political <laughs> question. And you know, one of my aims with this whole series is to spread the idea of scientific thinking. Oh, I see. Okay, I, so we, we are among yeah, friends we, here. <laughs> yes, so well, and, and I hope we can get more friends. And uh, yes, so th that's my worldview as well. But why I've asked the question is that I do see the same tendencies: science being questioned, even, yes. even in, in a non-scientific way, being questioned. Because I know that well. That's the truth. That yes. they have to question stuff. Partly through very bad sources as well. Yes. So I, I work with a lot of students who are studying coaching and other professions like consulting or supervision. And they write dissertations, they have to write papers. And they very often find uh, a fantastic quote on, on the internet. And I do that as well. I find quotes. I, I found a beautiful quote by John Lennon recently. And then I bought his book. And I could, could not find the quote anywhere in that book. So on the internet, we sometimes find data and sources and information which isn't really doesn't stand up to uh, scrutiny mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a real problem i think yeah and i absolutely agree with that do you have a suggestion or or an idea for people who are interested in getting more into the science of of coaching and of the helping professions what what should be the things to look out for when they are Consuming information, consuming research, for example, around coaching or the helping profession. Um, well, I would, I would hope that they, um, they, they, they won't just consume the information, but they would actually check it, so that they would stay a little bit longer. By you know, if they find an interesting fact, that's of course intriguing, but then I would recommend reading a couple of articles around that, not just one article. And of course, to read peer-reviewed articles about it, which, which demonstrate the fact. So if, for example, if they pick up from this podcast that coaching is statistically speaking effective and they're intrigued by that, then I would say don't start repeating that mantra or that you know, fact that you've heard. Check it out first and you know, read some articles, see if you also can be convinced by those articles that coaching is statistically now demonstrated to be effective up to a certain point, of course, uh, and then and then start talking about it, let's say. So keep checking, keep reading, and follow your passion as well. I, I think it helps to be passionate because then you would always want to know more about the uh, – and, and, and you want to know the counterexamples as well if you're really passionate about these things. Thank you very much. And we've been mentioning a number of studies, how to engage with them, to keep checking in. Let me ask one more person. Well, I have a number of personal questions. But okay. let, let the next one be a personal one as well. So what was, what was your favorite research study or one of yours that you have led, you have done ah. recently or in, or, or in your career that gave interesting results or that kept you moving on. Could you share something out of your research history? Um, well, I can, I can give you a very recent one um, that, uh, that I'm proud of, that I have enjoyed doing, um, together with a statistician, uh, Victor Nilsson, who has helped me do the 
the actual analysis. Um, and it's an interesting one because I can't publish it. So I've already sent it to 10 peer-reviewed journals and they all say they're not interested for, for various reasons. And the study is a meta-analysis of all the randomized controlled studies in coaching. So there are about 30, 37, I think, of them now over the last 20 years. And um, we have done an analysis of what all these uh, randomized studies, what they are telling us about effectiveness of coaching. So it's a very uh, abstract topic. Um, but I think it's a very good article because it bases itself on randomized control trials, uh, which, are, which are the best trials that we have. And it's also interesting because it shows a few things that we didn't know yet about the, the coaching outcome research. But I haven't been able to, to hand it to an editor. They've all pushed back so far. So I may, I, I'm going to rework it one more time this weekend and then send it again. And, and don't forget, if you send in an article to a peer-reviewed journal, you on average, you get a response in about 60 days. So I've been, I've been sitting on this article for, for more than a year now. It's, it's uh, 14 months old. Um, and I'm very fearful that there will be another randomized control study that I have not included. So then it will be outdated the moment it goes to press. So that's a bit of a tragedy, but uh, but but still something I'm I'm quite proud of. And it tells me the story that it's not an easy thing to be a researcher. <laughs> Sometimes it's sit, hard sitting behind books and writing interesting stuff. But we yeah. have the burden of getting published and being reviewed and criticized. So, but but for me, that's the the part of the process that, that yes. ensures that we are giving out quality stuff from our hands. Yes. And I think I think there's also something about you know, I think in physics and also in medicine, uh, we're quite interested in the data and the statistics. Uh, what I'm finding is in in, in psychology and in in, in the uh, organizational development literature and coaching, people are more interested in models. Uh, I find so this meta-analysis study doesn't have a model of coaching or a model of effectiveness, and that was often a reason for an editor to say that is not interesting or that is not so relevant. Uh, so yes, it can be, it can be very hard, but, it, but it's also amusing. You know, I, I don't need to kind of publish for my, uh, you know, for my daily bread. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of a hobby still for me. So I, I find it amusing as well that I, I get so many rejections. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I won't I complain about it. <laughs> And I know that it's not a it's not a habit to share things from unpublished materials, but yeah. is there something that you could say from the results of this study? And I'm absolutely okay if you say now. But this yeah, well, everything you said was so intriguing that I'm like, okay, what well, what are the outcomes that, that you find to be interesting and they don't get published? I'm like Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, sometimes I feel, you know, I can say this, that I find it amusing and that, uh, you know, it's not my, it, it, for my ego, for my self-worth, it's not so important to publish this study. But I do feel for younger researchers like you, you know, um, like yourself, uh, you know, I do remember when I was in my 20s and I, I started to publish my first physics articles and I had the same sort of experiences sometimes that it was excruciatingly 
hard. So I think I'm by now I'm also a little bit privileged because I've already published things. Some some uh, more informal journals they know my name, so they they take it on. So I'm I think I'm quite spoiled in other areas. But with this meta analysis, I've had real difficulties. Um, and to answer your question, yeah, well, we found it's all a bit technical, of course, what we found, but we found that coaching was less effective than psychotherapy per session, somewhat less effective, but not, not bad. It was, it's like point, the delta, which measures this, is about 0.8 in psychotherapy, and it's about 0 0.73, 0 0.7. Uh, so it's, it's not a huge difference, not a huge gap. That's one thing. Um, what we also found is that the spread, even though these randomized studies, uh, they are very different, different, different fields, the spread of the effectiveness is smaller than in psychotherapy. So they, they are clustered more together in coaching, which I thought was very encouraging. And finally, we found that uh, interesting little things, uh, or which could turn out to become big things, for example, that female clients doing better. Than uh, the male clients, as far as we could establish that, uh, and I've always thought that coaching is a bit of a female profession. So, yeah, I found that interesting as well. Yeah, so <laughs> all the three of these uh, could just be okay. Let, let's let's read something <laughs> more about those. That's my that's my first reaction. That, mm -hmm. and yes, I, and you know what? What I'm thinking is that I. I I read your books and the and the, in one of them what really catch my eye is that the younger coaches under circumstances <clears throat> under certain circumstances tend to be more effective than experienced one. Yes. It's, yeah. Prove me if I'm quoting you wrong. So no, no. And, and I have this. So these these ag aggregated results are very yeah, in intriguing. Yes, they, 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 I agree. Okay, so what's the point of that? Are they more curious? Do they have a different kind of courage? Are they yeah. not? Do they have less self-limiting beliefs, or are there the methods they are using are less solidified? If that's a, a proper word yes, to be used here be. in 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 their minds, are they more flexible? Or, or yes, could there? be, could be. I think all of those things you mentioned could be could be really relevant. Plus the fact that maybe they are also more motivated at the beginning of their careers and they're less uh, kind of blasé about their their work or less kind of uh, grandiose, you know, conf overly confident maybe as you, you will see with the older practitioners. So all of these factors might play a role. And yeah, this is something that I also find very interesting and we couldn't, we couldn't test that in the meta-analysis. So it, it doesn't come out of my own work, but I've seen that in other people's work. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's humbling, isn't it? Especially for senior practitioners to uh, to know this yes. that you become you may become kind of less effective over the course of your career. <laughs> yes, I used to tell my my students when teaching about therapy because I, I I was teaching at a university for a few years. I was always telling them that psychology, psychotherapy, and coaching, so these helping professionals are the ones in which you 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 get aged into so the more older you are the more experience you will get mature and, and, yes yes, yes. So you get more mature and your value will just rise compared to let's say to to pro uh, uh, athletes or 
or, or sportsmen who just reach uh, a maximum in an, in an earlier age and yes. due to their physical capabilities, they would yes. perform well, a degree. So, yes, hmm. well, I think that is true commercially. And it's true, definitely also true in terms of the power that you wield, both in the profession with colleagues and in the consulting room with your clients. So your clients will admire you more, put you more on the pedestal. So it is true that as you mature, uh, you, you have a bigger impact in certain ways, if you're financial, for example. However, if you look at how helpful you are for your client, which should be the, the number one qualifier, uh, I think research is, is showing quite clearly that we, we are becoming less helpful to our clients it's over time. For self-reflection, yes. for, for, for a number of us, on how can we keep our helpfulness at the top? Yes. And what does it have to say about us or, or yeah. egos or whatever? And, and let, let me take this and circle back to a, a concept you have mentioned previously, is that you talked a lot about uh, relationship and how does the coaching relationship work. And well, you didn't talk a lot about how does it work, but you mentioned that certain research say that the thing we thought to measure as coaching relationship, it may not be the thing that we are measuring. No. So so I'm, I'm curious, what is there anything that current research says about the component of the relationship. So what is the yes. thing that we can take for granted? I mean, scientific, uh, under scientific circumstances or you know, within the boundaries of research. Uh, well, sorry, what is the thing we take for granted? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, a bit long question. I just wanted to be very sure that I asked you precise <laughs> ones. <laughs> <laughs> no so, problem. What, what are the, are there any concepts or components of the yes. coaching relationship? that has yes. been proven to work. Yes, it's a fascinating area. And it's, I think it's very much in development at the moment. But what, what we used to do, and, and before us, of course, many psychotherapists, including Wampold, who, who I mentioned, uh, who wrote a, an important book about this, uh, we used to just want to measure the, the relationship, the working alliance in the, in the helping professions. Mm -hmm. And we did this by asking the clients uh, about the relationship. And so sometimes we also ask the coach about the relationship or we ask an observer looking at videos about the relationship. And already from the very beginning, we noticed or we found that actually what the coach says, what the client says and what the observer says is hardly correlated. It's not, not correlated very much. So that, that should already have made us think a little bit. Um, but I think what we're now beginning to realize is that these measurements, they, are, they come from an idea of a, of a one-person psychology. Uh, mm -hmm. So they, they are actually measurements of what one person experiences as a relationship. And that is not the same as an in-between, uh, a, a co-created emerging relationship. So it's not a one-person psychology measurement is not the same as a two-person psychology interaction. And I think we're not really measuring this two-person thing between us. We are measuring one person expressing him or herself about the working alliance, about the strength of the relationship. And what you get then is that you actually measure a much more holistic 
image that they have of the coach or the coaching or the whole process, it's all intermixed. So their own motivation, their own optimism, their own uh, outcomes, what they feel they've got from the coaching and the working alliance, they are very strongly correlated. So what you're really measuring is how happy they are generally with coaching. So you don't really pick up aspects of the relationship. The, you know, what, what, uh, is there any contracting? Is there any kind of understanding clarity about goals? You can ask those questions, but the answers are going to be mixed with a general sense of well-being or, 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 or being helped. Uh, so I think um, we can stop asking so many questions of the client because the, 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 the answers will correlate hugely anyway. And we should begin to ask ourselves questions about the dynamics in the room. But that's very difficult to measure. And yeah, that's what I wanted to add, that this seems to be a challenge for the tools, that most of the tools we are using yeah. are... Yes. Are well, it's also... It's, it, yeah, no, that's true. But it's, it's long been said that out of those three measurements from the client side, from the coach side, and from the observer side, the, the one that is actually the most interesting one in, in, in terms of effectiveness, for example, the one that correlates best with effectiveness seems to be the observer measurement. Mm. So it does seem to be the case that an observer looking at two people working together, that they can, they can see something about you know, what's, what's co-created, what's shared between those people. So there are a number of articles that show that if you measure effectiveness well, which is on an objective scale or in the eyes of other people around the coachee, and you measure the working alliance by an observer, uh, measured by an observer, then you get variables that, that, that have a meaningful interaction. Uh, so I think we, all, we can get there. We can get there, but we shouldn't be too glib or too kind of superficial in our understanding of the coaching relationship. That sounds very interesting. And, <laughs> and, and I could just keep on thinking about then the role of supervisors and yes. how, how they can impact the development of the coaches. And of course, they are there because we all think that supervision benefits the coach. But yes. then this could add an additional role to the to the supervisor. And I can think of you know the my internal supervisor, let's Let's call yeah. that that third point, third person perspective. I'm sometimes trying to take, taking a look at what is going on between me and my client. Can yeah. I just take a, a different perspective? Can I just change my perspective within the given situation and assess it? So I, I have lots of practical follow up ideas. Yes, that I could bring. In. Yeah, I like I like that very much. Uh, that that supervision could play a role in this. And also, we could do so much more kind of um, study of supervision. I think supervision is really important. So, for example, the, the impact of the supervisor on the client of the coach, that's not been studied very well yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're, you're quite right. A supervisor could play an important role. A supervisor could, for example, um, as, as we do uh, at Ashridge, and we have a supervision qualification program as well, and we look at these things with other supervisors but supervisors could also look at um 
sessions, uh, you know, with evidence like transcripts, um, either written transcripts or recordings, or they could even come and, and join for part of a session and then have a view of what kind of relationship patterns are there. And, and I think that kind of feedback is ve- can be very helpful to coaches. I, just, I have these fireworks in my mind when <laughs> I'm talking about this topic. But let me move on because I, I have one more question and I'm yes. just conscious about our time. That there are so many areas of research around the helping profession, around coaching. And, and what is my opinion? What, what are the most important frontiers now? Where should ah. we focus on? Okay. I think we mentioned some already that mm-hmm. around the relationship, for example, more holistic measurements, if, if possible. We, measured, uh, we, we mentioned videos and observers and how they can help. And I think all of the research that's taking place in Germany w- uh, with the help of video recordings of sessions uh, is, is very, very helpful and is beginning to yield interesting and, and hard findings about coaching. Uh, so I've also um, collaborated with one of the German universities, the one in uh, Bonn, where Professor Janiro works. And we do a joint pro- project together where I deliver the videos of coaching from, from England. And she and her team and some of my team as well, we, we um, analyze those video images in terms of the relationship and all these things. So I think that's very exciting research. And I also wanted to say that uh, although we've been talking quantitative research uh, today very much, I'm also a fan of qualitative research. And I think that is also very exciting. It's just that you, you, don't, you don't find facts. Uh, you still find inspiration. Uh, and if you do a lot of it, then you might still find facts because you can, you can take all your qualitative information and then do some statistics if you have a lot of it. So I love qualitative research as well. And I've grown into it because as a physicist, you don't get any exposure to that. Uh, so uh, it's, it's become uh, something interesting for me in the new profession. Uh, and that includes also introspective research where you kind of analyze your own dreams or your own uh, experiences of coaching in a very subjective way. Uh, that could also be very interesting, provided it's done in a rigorous way. So uh, at Ashridge, we do a lot of action research, which you're, I don't know if you're familiar with, where you, where you kind of study your own actions in it, it, as, whilst you are in action. I am, but I hope that it is useful for our audience to hear a bit more about that, because for, for me, action research is something through which practitioners can get involved in the world of research more easily yes. than, than through other Definitely. Or from or, yes. or through other vehicles. So you know yes. I would be curious on your you know on your suggestions on how how, how yeah. can practitioners yes. get closer to the research world either to action or other things. No that's that's beautiful. I completely agree with you. And in fact I would almost say don't get involved in, in quantitative research un- unless you are really passionate about it. Uh, because I've, I've seen too many examples of people doing, uh, you know, m- making a survey, sending it around, and then analyzing the results of the survey. 
but because they have no control group or they, they don't really know what's what they're doing, they don't find anything. So even though they spend time in quantitative research, if it's not really randomized control trials or something serious, you, you usually don't find anything useful. Uh, so it's, it's, you are right. For most practitioners, it's best to stay out of quantitative research un, unless they really love it, but go to, for example, action research. Um, and you can start with, uh, you know, just keeping a diary uh, of your, uh, you know, making a, a kind of a transcript or a diary of your coaching work. And you just put that in a, in a notebook, you know, like this. Uh, I've got my notebook always with me. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, write down your findings. And um, that can become a beautiful article that people will want to read. And even if it doesn't, if it does never become an article, it will make you a better coach, I think, because you will do some uh, cycles of reflection on top of your reflection with your clients. Uh, so, yeah, that's something open to all of us. And in fact, uh, from a regulatory perspective, we do need to make notes, don't we? You know, it's an ethical thing that you make notes. So you already start making notes in or just after your sessions. And just to kind of kind of process those notes a little bit more, that's already action research in my view. I'm so glad that you, you brought in uh, qualitative research. Ah, because. Okay. Um, because is that your own domain, Sultan, of, of studies? or, or you... Let's say that currently I'm involved in, in a project ah. like that. Okay. And, uh, and I'm fascinated by the, the individual depths that we can touch there. Yes. And, and I, do see, uh, I do see that these, that, uh, these are different discourses. I mean, talking quantitative or qualitative research, which which seems to be better, which seems to serve our profession better. That's something that I hear in some discussion. And I'm, yes. I'm happy to hear that someone like you said that both of them have a place at the table. Because yes. I, I think that we need to grasp as many tools that, as we can to understand the beautiful thing that we call coaching. And yes. And whatever. So if we can make a contribution, then let's make it with whatever we want, with, with however we can make it. Yes. Do you have a favorite uh, qualitative study? Oh, well, I guess you are fed up with me asking about your favorite study. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much, Sultan, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's a little bit hard to answer favorite. Yeah. Best okay. ever. Yeah. Best ever article. <laughs> no, I, I know um, that doesn't exist. And just... Is there one so provoking article or research that mm. you would recommend others to read? Yeah, yeah I, just, I, I just like to kind of observe that qualitative research does not produce truth, not in a general sense, only subjective truth, so no objective truth. So in terms of the political question you asked earlier, qualitative research is as bad as Facebook or, or any other kind of... Uh, influencer uh, mm -hmm. on the internet so it's it's not for that purpose that we do it we do it for the purpose of inspiration or faith or finding our own subjective um, kind of uh, liveliness or uh, novelty so if that's the purpose i think you can think about qualitative research more widely and you can just think of um 
you know, plays that uh, or or uh, music or or anything that or a walk in the park, a uh, session of mindfulness meditation. So anything that inspires counts as qualitative research for me. Uh, so if you would ask me favorites, I would probably come to you back with with quite obscure references to uh, to tragedy or uh, you know other cultural expressions. Uh, I was reading the letters between uh, Freud and Lou Salome uh, recently. Uh, so Sigmund Freud and Lou Salome have had a correspondence. Uh, she's a, she became a psychoanalyst. And they both discussed patients in their letters. And, you know, that was very inspirational for me. And it's, although they, these were just private letters, uh, it, it, in fact, this is, this is qualitative research. Certainly for her, you know, she, because she, she was a relatively less experienced psychotherapist. So occasionally, um, and also she lived in the Germany with the very, very high inflation. So she had no money for a while, even though she, she was of... Uh, uh, you know, quite noble descent. Um, so uh, Freud gave her money and patience at, uh, at times just to help her out. So then she reported back about those patients confidentially to, to Freud as a, a kind of a form of supervision. And I find that kind of thing very inspirational. So if you ask me a, a good piece of recent action research that I've, I've read, I would say the letters uh, between Salome and Freud. Thank you. Thank you. And, and let me just pause for a moment okay. because something that I will just cut out that I don't remember what is the final length or your availability. We have agreed. Because, oh, I've uh, got, I, I've I, got uh, 10 minutes more, 15 minutes more, if that's okay with you. If you yes. have more questions, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I will have, we've covered a lot already. But. Yes, I, I will have two more. Mm. And okay. And I mean, let me ask one of them up front that you mentioned that you have prepared some answers and I don't want your your work to not be used. So is there anything you have prepared for and I have not asked? No, I the only preparation that I've done is read your your potential questions. And okay. they uh, they gave me a lot of uh, uh, you know the, the responses were already uh, flashing through my mind, and and so and some some I found a bit harder to answer, but uh, I won't mention those now because then you will confront me immediately with one of those questions, <laughs> and others were just quite inspirational, um, but but nothing nothing in particular that I I feel I need to mention. Uh, okay, then I just have then yeah. here is the cut point. So I have one more question to ask. Okay. Do you see any blind spots on research? I know this is a paradox thing to ask, because <laughs> if you would see them, that it would already, it wouldn't be a blind spot. But do you see any areas, yeah. either from a methodological point of view or yes. from a content point of view, that have not really got proper attention lately, or where you see a huge potential? Yes. Uh, well, it's funny, but that was one of the questions that I found a bit hard to answer. So, but I will get, I'll give it a try. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the blind spots, obviously one we've already mentioned, the fact that uh, the experience of coaching is very holistic. So um, when I go to my sessions, to, to my supervisor, for example, I have a very kind of... Um, um, 
an experience of helpfulness which is goes across all sorts of dimensions that are, that researchers usually ask so uh, do i get new ideas yes i get new ideas do i get support yes i get support do i value the relationship yes i value the relationship am i going in in an optimistic way uh, you know am i am i kind of positive about uh, the work yes i always look forward to the session so it's all mixed in my mind all these kind of specific dimensions that people measure they're all mixed in my mind and my impressions are much more holistic and much more around meaning so which means that sometimes one little statement from a session can follow me for weeks uh, but you never know which statement that is so it's very hard to measure so that's a blind spot in research that we that we ask such focused questions uh, we have to do that because otherwise we don't get statistical data uh, yet we know that the whole experience is holistic um, and there are other blind spots as well. So I, I've been, I've been very positive about randomized control trials because I think they're very rigorous if 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 done well. Like for example, biomedics, very often they're done well. However, um, in coaching, of course, the the coachee knows whether they are in the control group or in the uh, coaching group because either they receive coaching or they don't receive coaching whilst they do the questionnaires. And I think that is such a big difference uh, to just do questionnaires or to, to have sessions and then do questionnaires that it's a bit of an unfair comparison as well. So there are some problems with randomized control trials or some blind spots that we find very difficult to address. And in fact, the ad editors that turned me down with my paper, that's one of the, one of the things they raised, a couple of journals raised the fact that I was not critiquing randomized control trials. And of course, they are right uh, to say that. On the other hand, we don't have anything else better in quantitative research. So those are some blind spots that I can see. We have methodological challenges or challenge of methods. Yes. For the whole researchers of coaching, because we are focusing on, we are experimenting or observing something which is very subjective. And yes. Putting that into boxes or to numbers. Yes, that, that is the challenge to make the observation, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful challenge to have. Yes, yes. <laughs> thank, thank you very much for your time and for joining me in this. I session. really enjoyed it, Sultan. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting conversation for me. Thanks to your 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 views, and also thanks to your your questions. Very nice meeting you in person finally after so many emails over the years. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zoltanchigesh.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.